This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. I'm just looking at it as a bonus. I don't have anything to prove. I don't have anything to win. And um, <laughs> I have absolutely nothing to lose. Today in America, great things are happening. Serena Williams is shining for perhaps the last time at the U.S. Open before evolving into a new career. NASA is preparing for the first moon launch in decades. President Biden's approval ratings have jumped to 44%, up from 38% in July. And today in America, Twitter is trending with hashtag Trump meltdown. Yeah, hashtag Trump meltdown. Why? Because splashed across every newspaper and broadcast in this great land is a salacious photo. A photo Trump certainly never wanted you to see. Of top secret documents laid out on the floor of his Mar-a-Lago office like dead bodies that he forgot to bury. Breaking news. The Justice Department today released this photo of the documents seized. You just saw it. In the raid on former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate, it showed several classified cover sheets. The Justice Department said it had uncovered efforts to obstruct its investigation into the discovery of those classified documents. It also said that government records were likely concealed and removed from a storage room at the property. Mr. Trump has insisted that he did nothing wrong. Late Tuesday night, the DOJ released the photograph along with a damning 36-page filing that, amongst other things, claims that Trump lied, obstructed their investigation, mishandled classified documents, and attempted to conceal them from the National Archives, who had been struggling to retrieve for over a year and a half. 180 years of searching, and I'm three feet away. Of all the words written here about freedom, there's a line that's at the heart of all the others. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and provide new guards for their future security. People don't talk that way anymore. This filing was in response to Trump's lawsuit last week requesting that a court-appointed special master review the material seized from a Mar-a-Lago by the FBI back in early August. But now the DOJ contends that there is no special master needed because the documents don't belong to the former president and they never have. He's just a fucking idiot. He stole them, he hid them away, and then abused their significance by leaving them haphazardly around his stupid fucking country club, where just anyone could find them. We've heard from all the reporting that Donald Trump believed that these documents were his, they belonged to me, and that privacy argument we heard even last night from his attorneys. Well, Karl Rove was talking about that last night on Fox News. Here's what he said. That's its own situation that the DOJ is investigating and the Trump side has their lawyers and their feelings about what what was rightfully right. his and able to take. But it's just well, interesting. They're, they're, Go ahead. They're, they're, let's be clear. Let's be clear on this. None of these government documents are his to have taken. I, I agree with the deputy director who said that a lot of the pro, former president's mm-hmm. problems are of his own creation. You can, under the, Fed, the Presidential Records Act of 1978, you cannot take original documents out of the White House with you when you leave the White House, whether you're the president of the United States or any of his aides. But by concealing classified documents he professed not to have, he landed himself and the lawyers who vouched for him in scalding hot water. 
Despite a story that has changed more times than makes rational sense, Merrick Garland and the DOJ aren't backing off. Quite the opposite. And Trump is about to find out that the Attorney General is fuck a lot smarter than he is. Donald Trump has to try to find a way to sleep knowing how very badly he misjudged Attorney General Merrick Garland. What Trump was doing with the stolen documents remains to be seen. But it's Trump. He could have wanted them for any number of reasons. Posterity, extortion, blackmail, you name it. But he wasn't even a little worried about the lives that might be on the line or the positions that he was compromising. Or he would have given the documents back without the search warrant. They will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen. But to Trump, those documents represent his power, power over his enemies, and maybe even power over a certain French president that he was jealous of. Whatever the case, he didn't want to give them back. Like he didn't want to give back the presidency, or his executive powers, or Air Force One. No, he wanted to keep it all. But today, I'm betting that it's starting to sink in, that those things are gone and they ain't never coming back. And if you broke the law, you can't say that. I'm not gonna, you, I already said you will pay. The demonstrators who infiltrated the Capitol have defied the seat of dust. It's defiled, right? See, I can't see it very well. But this election is now over. Congress has certified the results. I don't want to say the election's over. I just want to say Congress has certified the results without saying the election's over, okay? All the stalling and bad lawyering in the world isn't going to make his case go away. In fact, he's compounded it by falsely claiming that the FBI planted the documents. And now, you can hear that bullshit parroted all over right-wing news media. They've even got a new slogan, defund the FBI. And replace it with what? Jack boots? Brown shirts? In Trump's dictator fever dreams, all the cases against him are gone. He's more powerful than Putin. But in reality, even some of his old friends are starting to throw him under the bus. Based simply on his reading of last week's highly redacted FBI affidavit, Alan Dershowitz, yeah, Alan fucking Dershowitz, said there was currently enough evidence to indict the former president. And by Wednesday morning, even the gossip rags got in on the act. TMZ ran the headline, Mar-a-Lago Raid, shocking photo of top secret docs. Trump kept some in his desk. Uh, he had apparently me. three classified documents in his desk. And then the stuff, as Brian detailed on the floor, it shows uh, five yellow folders marked top secret and another one with that says secret SCI, which means sensitive compartmentalized information. Those are the biggest secrets in the world. Why would he, and apparently the president, former president went through them in January. Why wouldn't he say, oh, you know what? I really need to turn that back over. Why did he have all that stuff at Mar-a-Lago? Steve Ducey also went off on Trump Wednesday morning while on Fox and Friends chatting it up with Trump's superfan, the dim-witted governor of South Dakota, Kristi Noem. Ducey said, and I'm going to quote, ultimately, it comes down to why did he have all that secret stuff at Mar-a-Lago? 
but leave it to good old Christy Noem to call black and white the FBI untrustworthy. Well, that's why I think it's important that this is transparent and that we do have someone <laughs> who's outside of the DOJ looking at this and talking to people. What What is this information? We don't know what was in there. We don't know. If, I think, believe President Trump declassified all this information. Let's find out really what the process is, what is right, what's precedent that other other presidents have followed and make sure that this I is don't think any governor, governor i don't think any president has ever carted off that many documents to their house now why would the doj want to share top secret documents with the public or christy noem or any other fucking person the agents who seized those documents had to get special clearance just to pick up the folders that they were in just to touch them and prosecutors argue that Trump's attorneys move too slowly and that it would be pointless to appoint a special master because investigators have already reviewed everything that was seized. George Conway, uh, why would Team Trump want this information out there? Why would they even ask for a, a special master uh, knowing what the evidence is? Uh, it, it's insane. They, they, they asked for the they ask, basically, they asked for the Justice Department to punch them in the face. And that's what the Justice Department did in this, in this brief. And did anyone ever believe the bullshit about Trump declassifying the documents? Even though no one had ever heard about it before the raid. And hello, you can't declassify stolen documents anyway. It's just another fucking lie Trump forgot to tell his lawyers. Or they would have mentioned it to the feds when they voluntarily turned over the first 15 boxes of documents back in January. Trump's lawyers will end up being witnesses in the case against him. Mark my words on that. When you get fired in a movie, right, and every time someone leaves, they only have one box worth of their stuff to take. It's that same box, right? It's that hey, same box that was pictured. It was underneath there. my lamp and I couldn't see it. That's the problem. I put the lamp in the box to carry out the lamp and the picture of my kids, of course, and I put it in the box and then I didn't see the top secret documents in there. The Washington Post says the evidence laid out in Tuesday's filing could be enough to build the case around Trump's attorneys, Evan Corcoran and Christina Bob. They willingly obstructed the government's investigation into the documents at Mar-a-Lago. Lawyers for the government recounted numerous instances when they purposely misled government officials during the investigation. But there are places on the internet where you'll find, let's say, dubious legal advice. Trump has apparently hired a new lawyer after struggling for weeks to find anyone still willing to represent him. And why wouldn't they? He doesn't pay. So they bring on Chris Kyes, a former Solicitor General in Florida who served as an advisor on Ron DeSantis' transition team. He signed a multi-million dollar deal to represent the former president. Now me personally, I would tell him, make sure you get the money up front. According to Trump's team, he was given assurances that he would be taking the lead role in the case. Now, listen up, pal. Good luck. That's all I've got to say. Actually, no, wait. That and don't expect to ever get paid, ever. And tonight, his life got much worse with the revelation in the New York Times that Donald Trump himself went through all of the boxes of documents that he was illegally possessing and concealing at his Florida home. And this is the kind of reporting that indicates that Donald Trump's legal life is going to get 
much, much worse as this story keeps moving forward. That's why I'm telling you, take the money up front. And one last bit about the damn documents that I found interesting, according to the New York Times, during the transition from the White House, Trump had overseen the packing process himself with great secrecy, declining to show some items, even to top aides, said a person familiar with the process. So, while other people may go down for Trump, at the end of the day, this is all on him. It's a witch hunt, hoax. The witch hunt. It's a total witch, witch hunt. hunt. Do you have these phony witch hunts? Tuesday's DOJ filing makes one thing clear. The evidence of obstruction combined with the mishandling of classified documents should be enough to ban Trump from running or holding office ever again. And should you want to do a deeper dive on the Mar-a-Lago scandal, check out our special episode featuring legal expert Frank Fagluzzi that dropped earlier this week. I mean, folks, it's a killer. And now for the main event. Today, we welcome to the show political analyst Zerlina Maxwell. Maxwell is the director of progressive programming at Sirius XM and a political analyst for MSNBC. She's had her own show called Zerlina on Peacock and was formerly the director of progressive media for Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. Maxwell is also a sought-after commentator, speaker, and writer. She writes and speaks about culture, gender inequality, sexual consent, racism, and similar topics from a liberal perspective. She describes herself as a survivor of sexual assault and a survivor activist. So catch her great daily show, Mornings with Zerlina, on XSM Progress. Now let's go now to that conversation. Okay, so Zerlina. We've talked about Trump and his standoff with the National Archives a lot. And Trump has, I mean, he's had sort of a win. I mean, in that this Florida judge um, has assigned a special master to look over the documents that he had in his possession. What do you think will have, what do you think having a special master will end up doing for him in this case? Because to me, it seems like just more stalling on Trump's part. But at the end of the day, how do you see this whole incident with Mar-a-Lago and the documents affecting his his future? Not just, mm. I'm talking about his in potential incarceration, but I'm talking about the, his future for potentially running again. Is this the story that brings him down? Or do you think that we've moved on in a few weeks, that we'll just move on as we seem to have done just all too often? Well, maybe the American public might move on. Um, and first of all, thank you. Thank right. you so much for having me. Um, maybe the American public will move on. But I don't think that any of the prosecutors at the Department of Justice will move on. I don't think that any of the people tasked with, you know, ensuring that our national security is protected will move on. I don't think that judges um, who are, you know, taking the the time in this particular case to rule on these serious issues will just move on. Um, one of the pieces of analysis that I just read was that the special master point may be moot just at this point because it's already, you know, the, the judges said that all these documents have already been gone through before and, you know, the privileged material had been set aside. Um, but at the end of the day, when I think about what's happened here with the story, all of these technical back and forth, what the court is ruling here, what the court is ruling there, what Donald Trump defenses today, 
that is like besides the point. Basically, how I summarize the story is this: Donald Trump took documents. So just just shorthand it with stuff. He took stuff. <laughs> this morning I was sort of likening it to uh, or comparing it to drugs. I was like, if you if you just instead of documents, just imagine just drugs, and then it's easier um, to sort of figure out whether some not something went wrong here. But basically, what what he did is he took stuff to Mar-a-Lago that he was not allowed to take. And then when they told him that the stuff you took, sir, is illegal for you to have it. We need it back. He said, it's my stuff. It's mine. I don't want to give it back. And then, okay, here's a little bit of it back. I promise I gave you all of it. Again, illegal for him to have. And then there's a back and forth. That's what we saw in that affidavit that was released about trying, you know, with the government trying to get back the stuff that it was illegal for Donald Trump to have. And then they went and got the stuff. They went and got a search warrant. They had it approved at the court and they went and got the stuff that it was illegal for Donald Trump to have. So he took the stuff. He had the stuff. He kept the stuff. All of those three things, illegal, illegal, illegal. Then he went back and forth with the government as they're trying to get their stuff back. And he lied to them during a during the investigation, they're claiming he obstructed their efforts to get that information back. And then they had to go take it back. I mean, I think that the fact pattern is very, very clear in a way that it hasn't been in some of the other criminal probes that Donald Trump has been a part of. And one of the things I, I always say um, is that, you know, sometimes the, the crime that you get sort of pinched on is the simpler one to prove. So maybe this is the one. I don't know, but I damn sure feel like there are a lot of people, black and brown and poor, in jail for a lot less. Oh, that's uh, listen. I was less. in jail, <laughs> and I spent time with with many of these folks, um, some of whom you know were selling or transporting marijuana, and today marijuana is legal. And the funny thing is, these multinational companies are moving more marijuana in an hour mm. than these guys are now doing 10, 15 years on. On top of that, with all due respect, and I've never smoked pot. I'm not a pot smoker. It's not my thing. Um, one of the things that I understand is that it doesn't destroy national security. <laughs> now, it may make you want to eat a bag of fucking Doritos <laughs> or something or a, bo or a box of Oreo cookies, but it's not going to fuck up the country right. right, and put our national security in jeopardy. Now, I know it sounds funny, but your idea of transposing the terms documents for drugs, it's very appropriate because it's true. It is a real serious problem that so many people aren't really taking serious, mm -hmm. uh, especially not in the country. They're like, well, you know, they're only documents and he declassified them. I love the apologists for Trump. No, that's not what it's all about. First of all, in my case, there was a special master, um, Judge Wood, mm -hmm. uh, became the special mastermind. But I was looking through 10 million documents. Here we're looking through 184. Because right. we don't need the love letters with Kim Jong-un. I'm sure they're very erotic <laughs> and they're fascinating. Or the love letters with Vladimir Putin. Oh, you know, my Russian sweetheart. Stop. All right. We don't need any of that crap. What we're looking for are the ones that were marked confidential, mm -hmm. secret, and top secret. 
And interestingly enough, I'm not even sure because there were, what, 25 documents that paragraph 47 in the affidavit disclosed that were marked top secret. You know, there were some that are so top secret, it's only for the eyes of the person right. that actually wrote right. it. So how are you going to now allow a special master to take a look at this? What if these are nuclear codes or locations? You know, people don't understand a special master is someone that gets appointed mm -hmm. by the judge in order to keep things moving, right? So that um, it's a neutral individual um, who's being asked to review highly sensitive documents. Well, these aren't like my documents really? between myself and Donald or, uh, you know, um, Stormy Daniels or the lawyer for Stormy or whatever. Um, Keith um, Davidson, mm -hmm. this, this had nothing to do. We're talking about national security, top secret documents. And I'm not really sure that this individual or anybody for that matter should be looking at them. Just my opinion. No, it's a really, really important point. And the other thing that you said this morning that's sort of been, I don't know, I'm gonna, I'm probably going to think about it when I don't sleep later, um, is is when you said that one of the theories that you have about, about Donald Trump is that potentially he took this information and kept it because it's leverage for later, right? If he is prosecuted in one of these other criminal investigations, whether it be down in Georgia or the DOJ here in Washington, Washington, D.C., related to the insurrection, you know, maybe he could say, hey, guys, I have some nuclear codes that I will sell to someone or um, give to someone bad if you prosecute me. And that is going to bother me because I feel like that should sound implausible. But given what we know about Donald Trump and given what you know in your experience, it's not implausible. Um, and I think that's the thing that's going to sort of stick with me. And the severity of what we're talking about here, and especially since you mentioned the nuclear codes, I mean, that that's the level of seriousness. Like, that's where we are now. Um, and the failure, I think, to hold Donald Trump accountable in all of these other opportunities, whether it be the Mueller probe or the first impeachment or the second impeachment, um, it feels to me like, you know, eventually the consequences are going to be irreversible if we continue to let him just get away with everything. Yeah. And, you know, you and I, I was on your uh, radio, your serious mm -hmm. um, XM uh, radio program this morning. And one of the things that, you know, I did say to you, and I still stand by it, is originally when I was on television, I think it was with Ari Melber um, or, or Alison Cameron, it was one of the two, I forget which one. I made a comment, which is, I think everyone's asking the wrong question. Not so much what were the documents. That's important. But I think the more important question that needs to be asked is why was he keeping right. those documents? Yeah. Okay, that's the one that we have to all look at. Um, and yeah, I stand by the fact, knowing Donald as I do, he will do anything in order to avoid responsibility, accountability, in that means throwing Alan Weisselberg under the bus, mm -hmm. which he's already done, uh, despite Alan not realizing it uh, in the Manhattan DA's case or what will ultimately roll into the New York Attorney General mm -hmm. Tish James uh, to her case or 
The Georgia case where Rudy Colludi, drunken Giuliani, is going to learn very quickly what it feels like to get your ass run over by four wheels of a bus. Uh, on top of that, you got Mark Meadows now. Now you have Lindsey Graham, who's making all sorts of stupid comments. Uh, we're going to get to him in, in a little bit. But, you know, one of the things that scared me more than anything is um, a couple days ago in the Washington Post, um, Jacqueline um, Alemani uh, wrote this article, which is called Inside Trump's War mm. on National Archives, uh, on the National Archives. And one of the things that it identified, and I didn't know this, is that Donald had actually taken scores of these classified records with him on trips. Mm-hmm. Now, again, it doesn't even take knowing Donald to realize what he's doing. He's going to use this as a get-out-of-jail-free yeah. card. He's going to use it and say to the government, no problem, you want to indict me? You want to incarcerate me? I have 20 supporters, and you don't have no idea who they are. 20 supporters who have copies of these 184 documents, or even maybe just the 25 that are the top secret. You put my, mm. you lock my ass up? I'm, what I, my folks are instructed to ensure that these get into the hands of Putin, Kim Jong-un, right? Um, you know, you, you name scary. it, Iran, right? This is, yeah, this is Mohammed bin Salman. I mean, the, and we have no idea. Right. You and I, we will never, ever know what those top secret, secret confidential documents are. Truth be told, I don't even really want to know. Mm. I just want to know why he had it, and I want to know that he was not successful in showing it or giving it away because our national security rests in those documents. And when I spoke the other day to Frank Fugluzzi, mm-hmm. and I also spoke to Norm Eisen yeah. about, you know, about this topic, both of them said the same thing. You don't realize the extent of the damage that 184 documents can do to the entire Justice Department and to the United States of America. Well, I think that, you know, especially because the Justice Department decided to go to a judge and get a search warrant, it's pretty clear that they feel like the potential for damage was pretty high. Um, I don't think they would have gone to these extreme measures if they didn't think that the damage to national security, um, you know, would be substantial. And then now we still have to figure that out. I mean, frankly, because, um, you know, they have to assess how much damage actually uh, occurred here, if any. And that's really alarming. I mean, how could, I mean, maybe you understand this because you were on the inside, but like, I always sort of waited, I think, for the moment where the Republicans would be like, all right, I've seen enough, like, he's gone too far. He has incited a whole insurrection and police have died. So now we should separate ourselves from Donald Trump. He has literally, you know, incited an insurrection that has resulted in the loss of law enforcement. Um, They never have though. And I mean, there was that brief moment the day of and the couple of days after, but obviously, you know, Kevin McCarthy went to Mar-a-Lago and changed his tune. But um, why do you think that is? I mean, what is it about him that, draws people to him i think that's my question like what is it that makes people want to be around him want to you know defend him in public like the charisma factor like what is it about him you know people don't realize that trump is actually very charming Mm. when he wants to be Mm. 
Um, more than that, he actually makes you feel not just that you're important, but that you're right there with him. Mm. This isn't my fight. Mm-hmm. This is our fight, right? You know, he uses that. And basically, the thing in your mind, at least if you're a Lindsey Graham, a Kevin McCarthy, and all these other acolytes that are sitting um, around him and continuing mm-hmm. to promote the big lie, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, the Ted Cruz's, they believe that he is the power right now in the RNC. They want to keep their seats, but they also want increased power. And their belief is that they are going to put their trust behind this buffoon, mm-hmm. right? And that they're going to stay loyal to him uh, so that they can achieve that power. Mm-hmm. If you saw the, you know, the Handmaid's yep, Tale, I it's did. no different, yep. right? With the, with the, uh, what's it, the admiral or the, um, the, um, the colonel, mm-hmm. whoever, I forget, he's the top guy. And then you see all these folks that are around him. And sometimes, like in The Handmaid's Tale, you have to sort of throw your own family under the bus yeah. because that's how you retain power and the loyalty, which I'm pretty sure that Jared would be number one, followed by Don, Ivanka, Eric, etc. Melania would go before he would go. <laughs> Um, rest assured, remember when he cut off his, remember when he cut off his wife's finger because she was reading the Bible, which was a violation. The same thing here. He will use Mm -hmm. anyone and everyone in order not to be held accountable. But then let me ask you this Mm -hmm. question. The Supreme Court's draconian abortion ban and all the states that have followed them down, you know, the woman-hating rabbit hole are turning people's lives upside down. Now, I'd go so far as to say that there's a real war on women and trans people in this country right now. And, you know, what brings up this question is our conversation with The Handmaid's Tale. And that The Handmaid's Tale, for instance would be like a dream come true for some of these Republicans. I mean, short of the ballot box, how can women take their power back? I mean, what else could they do? And by the way, Mm -hmm. I'm saying go to the ballot box. I believe every single woman, Republican, Democrat, Independent, should be voting these assholes right out of office. You turn around and you agreed with this abortion ban, you know, fuck you, you're (laughs) you're a goner. I think a lot no of, other way to say it. No, I think a lot of women are saying that. I think if you go on TikTok right now, um, there is a, 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 you know, there are a lot of women on on social media platforms right now expressing just how mad they are about that abortion ruling, about how they are basically like over men um, if they're heterosexual. Um, and I, I think a lot about the fact that one, women are going to go and make their voices heard. I think large groups of angry people have always changed the world throughout history at different points large groups of organized angry people they change things so large groups of angry women they're going to change things i mean we went outside after hillary clinton lost in 2016 and we put on this the pink hats if everybody remembers but what resulted from that march is people running for office so you had more women elected in 2018 um in the congress but also throughout the country and state legislators legislatures and then you know that sort of led us up to the point where you have a vice president that is a woman as well so i think like we're making very very small incremental progress um and the anger that was felt in 2016 after um the election of donald trump or you know him winning the electoral college 
you know, that was a moment where women were like, oh, crap, like the future that we sort of saw, the fact that women could be seen as equal, the women, that women could be seen as the president or seen as somebody who could be in charge and be a leader, we still have a ways to go. I mean, one of the first thoughts I had in the Javits Center on election night in 2016 was like, maybe I was naive when I joined this campaign and thought we were just going to, the the first woman to get the nomination was going to win. Like just on one try. I mean, when have when in life do you ever have to try once? to do something hard. Um, we hadn't done it in hundreds of years. Why would we try once and they would win? I mean, I know Barack Obama did it, but he's a man. It's different. Uh, there's nuance to it. Well, well look, <laughs> there's look, there's nuance I, I mean, to there it. are many things. That, uh, yes, there is definitely nuance to it. But the big problem here was not that Hillary Clinton was a woman. Hillary Clinton was the problem. Well, I think women hated Hillary. No, no, no Clinton. but I think that you know, the, the source of the hatred towards Hillary Clinton. And I thought a lot about this, like because I didn't join the campaign. I worked for Barack Obama, so I didn't join the campaign in 2016 as somebody who like grew up. There were a lot of people there that grew up loving Hillary Clinton and thinking she was God. Um, I joined the campaign respecting Hillary Clinton. And thinking that she had the experience to be president. And I wanted to be a part of history. Just like I was in 2008. And I think that her unpopularity. Which is I think what you're referring to. Like her approval ratings were very bad. So were Trump's. And that was like sort of the weird dynamic going into 2016. But like part of the problem was that a lot of the narratives created about Hillary Clinton. They started in 1990. (laughs) um, In Arkansas when she was the first lady. Um, And they asked her why she had continued to work as a lawyer. And she said to the person, well, I wasn't going to say I'm going to bake cookies. Like, I'm a, I'm a lawyer, so I'm going to go work as a lawyer. And ever since that, also coupled with the fact that she did not at first take her husband's last name, that, I mean, she was already just on the wrong side. And then since that point, sort of had to work her way back to being trusted. Because immediately when she was like, Hillary Rodham, you're like, oh, I don't trust her. She's not acting like her first but lady she should never, act. She never got that. She never got that trust back. That was the big problem. No, no, no. Problem. I don't. Th- then, I don't think that she got it that, back. But I'm all saying the nonsense, that right. I'm saying that was the source of why she lost uh-huh. it. <laughs> and then it was very right. difficult to get it back. And I think, in some ways, it's it's a. I'm not saying that Hillary Clinton is perfect. I would never say that. But I, what I am saying is that having been outside of the inside of headquarters. And just watching the coverage, right? And now I'm on the media side. So, like, I went from being inside watching the coverage to being on the outside covering campaigns. The level of sexism is, like, it was crazy in 2016. Um, And then we saw that sort of with the 2020 candidates as well. But I think she sort of paved the way for them to at least run more authentically as women than anybody had before because... She had done it and sort of agreed you know, been attacked for, for, you know, so long. Agreed. Agreed. But I think we also have to acknowledge that had anybody else run against Trump in 2016, the result would have been different. The problem Me? that when I, I said and I've spoken I, I to honestly, both sides, I honestly, I'm pretty sure I honestly of it. don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm being completely honest with you. I do not know. I don't know. I mean, I don't know that any woman could have beaten Donald Trump. I think that there was a lot of metrics, a lot of specific sort of things that happened. Like in some ways, when I look back on it, 
Like, I remember standing there the day after the election 2016 with Jess McIntosh, um, who sat next to me and was my, like, partner in crime and formerly hosted the radio show with me. Um, and we stood there and we were just like, I think all of this shit happened because she's a woman. Like, I think Vladimir Putin hated her. <laughs> Like, at the end of the day, because, like, she's a woman trying to, you know, like, there's a misogyny deep through all of this. A lot of the attacks on her specifically, maybe the the specifics of the attack don't seem that way, but at the core of it is misogyny. The core of it is distrust. I, really, I think the core of it was really just the whole Clinton machine, to be honest with you. That's when what, they, when it, the information but, came out as well, you know, about how they started um, that fund, you know, the... Um, the Clinton Foundation, to which 85% of every dollar raised, uh, they had complete discretion over uh, bad timing, bad no, move listen. by okay, all of so them. And yet Donald, no, no, no. yet Donald has keeps 90%. No, no, no. But here's the thing. But that's okay. No, but, but here's the thing. What I'm saying is that, like, no person out here in public life is absolutely perfect. And, like, you couldn't critique them on any single thing. But I think one of the things that happened with Hillary Clinton is that there is a particular um, nastiness with which I mean, like I would just talk to I mean, I'm just seeing, even saying anecdotally, people who are progressives would say to me, like, I don't know what it is. I just don't like her. I'd vote for Elizabeth Warren. And then Elizabeth Warren is standing in front of them. They, they're not voting for her either. And then I'm like, OK, well, I think that I figured out what's going on here. I don't think it has to do specifically with Hillary Clinton, even though people articulate and list out their reasons. I'm not saying, and again, like we we um, have already sort of gone through the fact that like everyone is entitled to their own opinion, right? So everybody can say like, this is the reasons I don't like Hillary right. Clinton. But one of the things that I observed in 2020 is that a lot of those people that were like, I, w- I don't like Hillary. It's not because she's a woman though, because I vote for Elizabeth Warren. When Elizabeth Warren was standing on the stage saying vote for me, they wasn't voting for her then either. So I just, there's a lot of overlap. In in those yeah, in well, those, I, I would like to see I would like to see a female president. I think the country would be in a lot better shape than these, yeah. you know, <laughs> these man babies, you know, like like Donald and so on. So let me ask you this then, because you've referred to yourself as a survivor activist. Mm-hmm. Can you do me a favor and expand on what that term means? I don't know what that term means and how you came to consider yourself a survivor activist. Oh yeah, I mean I don't. I might say that on like my Wikipedia and that's sort of a description um, that that goes to the fact that I'm a survivor of sexual assault. So and I've, been, I've talked about my experience in public so that when I say that I'm, you know, in a survivor activist, that means that I am willing to talk about what I have experienced in a public forum um, and with all that entails, which is not always a fun situation. But I think it's important because I'm strong enough to do it. Um, and I think I don't want anybody else to experience what I experienced. And so I am, I can step forward and say, these are the things that we can improve upon. We can talk about consent. We can talk about, um, masculinity. We can talk about, um, the need to perhaps acculturate some young men and boys a little bit differently so that they view women as full human beings and people and treat them accordingly. Um, so, so survivor activist is just someone who's sort of lived through a, a particular trauma um, but has chosen to utilize that trauma and talk about the trauma so that it doesn't happen to anybody else. So I guess I could call myself a survivor activist. You are survivor activist. You you survived solitary confinement. When you ex- shared that experience, I I my heart aches 
That is a horrible experience. I don't want anybody to experience that. No one. So one of the things people constantly, including the publisher of my book, uh, Melville House, said to me the, uh, when I gave them the manuscript to read, like, maybe we should tone down the attacks that you have on Otisville and the DOJ. And I said, bullshit, I'm not changing a single thing. Let me describe the cell the second time that they put me back in for another 15 days. And thanks to Donya Perry and Judge Alvin K. Hellerstein, you know, I was released. The cell that they put me in, actually the whole E building, the EA block of uh, the A block of the E building is how it's described, was condemned. They had um, previously had the guys from MDC in there who destroyed it. My window was broken. And when I say broken, not that it wouldn't open or close. It was missing a piece of glass. So it was about 100 degrees outside. Remember, we're 3,500 feet yep. on top of, uh, up in the air uh, on top of the mountain. It was oppressively hot. There is no ventilation. Forget about air conditioning. There's right. no ventilation. The window's missing a piece of glass. At nighttime, when it would rain, it would rain in on me. The bugs would all come in. I, all I did is ask for a piece of plastic and some duck and some tape. They refused to give it. You know, the toilet was broken. The sink was broken. The place was filthy. I mean, this is, this is where you go, right? When you're, you know, when you're in the custody of the U.S. Department of Corrections, the Bureau of Prisons. And it's wrong. And, you know, um, that place should not have been utilized at all, forgetting about the fact that it was on the wrong side. It wasn't the satellite camp. It was the, the other side. But there's no movement. You don't go outside. It's not like you see on, in the movies that they're right. outside hanging out. And so this was pure solitary confinement, 24-7. I was in an 8 by 10 cell for 51 days. And you know what? It does change you. Mm -hmm. But let, let me move on so I don't sit there and you know make this all about me. But the book goes into it with great, great detail. Um, so the poll numbers mm -hmm. may not reflect it, but Biden is on a roll at the moment, You know, getting a whole lot done for the country. Now, Kamala has also been tirelessly working for the country. But her numbers are even lower than Joe's, and she doesn't get press or any recognition for all the things that she's currently doing, the good things mm -hmm. that she's doing. Now, perhaps you'd give us your take on why you think that is. We already talked about it. <laughs> <laughs> Sexism. Well, let's talk <laughs> about it again. Reason. It's not the only reason. That's part of the reason. Um, part of the reason, and, and, and this is somebody who is, a, I am a member of the media. I have the, I get this, every single person in the media gets the same email that I do from the vice president's office with a list every week about everything she's doing. All her media, all her appearances, all her travel, every press appearance, every clipping. Um, we get that email every week. It is the choice of the person hosting a show to cover that. And to say this is what the vice president was doing. Now, most shows um, will cover what the president is doing and may not find you know space in their hour to cover what the vice president is doing. I have on specific occasions started my show with what the vice president was doing, whether it be having a summit, the first ever in American history on black maternal mortality, which has become extremely relevant now that abortion is illegal in this country. Uh, and black women were already disproportionately dying in childbirth. 
my grandmother died in childbirth. So this is a super real thing for me. My mother almost died having me and my sister. So uh, maternal mortality is something really close to my heart. And Kamala has taken that and championed that as an issue that she's focused on from day one. Now, could the men hosts cover it? Yep. Do they? Nope. Do I know why? Nope. (laughs) Um, So I think part of the reason is choices. Part of the reason is choices. They they choose not to focus on the thing things that she's doing. Maybe they don't want to talk about black maternal mortality. It's not an issue that is, you know, high on the priority list for them because it doesn't affect them. It's not seen as sort of horse race, you know, political gamesmanship or whatever that they like to focus on every day. But I do think that part of the problem is lack of diversity in our media, which would allow for at least different people to make the decisions about what to cover, what is covered and how to cover it. That's part of it. The other part is, you know, it, I think that there is a, sort of a balancing act she has to play where she's not the president. So, you know, I think, I don't know what Joe Biden's approval ratings were at any point compared to Barack Obama's like offhand, but I imagine they were similar or lower um, or maybe a little higher, but like similar because most people focus on what the president is doing and just associate everything the president is doing with what the vice president is doing, even though in some instances, um, and this was actually true about the Obama administration. I remember when Joe Biden went on the Sunday show was like, gay marriage should be legal. And everybody was like, what? <laughs> um, so there are moments where the vice president can sort of step forward and um, take a more commanding role on an issue. But um, I think that she is playing a supportive role. Um, she's the first person from her background, woman, uh, black and, and Indian woman who is in that position. So I don't necessarily say like what she's doing is the right way or the wrong way. Cause we don't know. We never, we never lived through it before. So I just think that what I like is that every week I get a, a detailed list of everything that she's done. And I think it's the choice of the people that work in the media to cover that or not. And if if the American public's not hearing about that and maybe that's not registering in her approval, that is partially um, the media, but also maybe they can find more creative ways to communicate Mm -hmm. it and they don't have to work through our filter. Right. I mean, certainly, you know, she has press office and they should be out there touting her accomplishments. I get offended by people because they know um, my stance. They know my position. I've been a Democrat my entire life. In fact, in 1987, I worked for Congressman Joe Moakley, you know, in the Capitol. A wonderful, wonderful man from Massachusetts. I really enjoyed that, you know, that year and a half, you know, working at that office. But I've had a chance to meet Kamala when I was testifying uh, before both the Senate uh, Select Committee on Intelligence that she sat on, uh, as well as when I was testifying before the House Oversight Committee. And I'll tell you, she's a wonderful person to meet one on one. She's a wonderful person. And I hear from people, I don't like her. She lies. She flip flops. She, do, you know, you, you can't believe anything that comes out of her mouth. Are they ever able to point mouth. to any and example? No, that's the point, Zelina, I was going to make. So I said, what did she say that you find so offensive? Right? You know, (laughs) first of all, I dig her because she's married to a Jewish guy. (laughs) 
right? You Doug know, is a, it's the first. He seems it, the, really nice. Sure. I don't know Doug, but I just seem he does, cool. doesn't he? he seems seems cool. like the kind of guy that you would go hang out. Exactly. Yeah, I'd like to go hang out with him at like a pool or something. You know, <laughs> and just shoot the shit for a while. He seems like a nice guy, but I, I then say the same thing. What is it that she said today, yesterday, whenever that offends you? Well, a lot of people don't like her because she was a prosecutor, right? Now she's flip-flopped on whether the whole country's flip-flopped on drugs, on, you know, marijuana and, and other sorts of drugs, decriminalizing them. You know, what, it's so easy just to blame everyone. But if I'm going to blame anybody for the poor numbers that she has, I, ha- I hate to say it, I blame her office in terms of the PR, and I blame the DNC, and I blame I blame you know uh, Jamie Harrison a lot on this show, right? I believe oh. that Democrats are missing. He's a very have, nice person. Have you had him on? on have you tried? By the way, super. By the <laughs> way, no, I have not. But super nice guy. No, don't get me wrong. Yeah. I'm not talking about as a person. No, no, no. I understand. I'm talking Nothing's about personal as on far as doing the job. Republicans are messaging twenty four seven. We, do you as think, Democrats, we don't message right. Well, do you think that part of the reason why they're able to do that, and I've thought a lot about this, and as somebody who, I, I, I host a morning show on Progress, but I am also the director of progressive programming. So when I started at Sirius, it was trying to figure out how to um, to have a progressive channel, to have a progressive platform. How can we help to amplify? How can, how can a channel help to communicate the message in the same exact way that the conservative channel, literally one of the other channels um, on Sirius, how they are able to do it. How can how is it that conservative radio and conservative media works as an amplifying bullhorn for the message, whereas the Democrats obviously have to work through the filter of the mainstream media because there really isn't progressive media dedicated just to the left. Um, and I think that one of the reasons there's a couple of reasons one of the main reasons is because there's less lying there's just less flat out lying it's a lot easier to come up with a message that's coherent that's easy to remember easy to repeat when you don't have to worry about nuance and complicated facts and um and all the details so so i do think that because i used to do a lot of debates on fox news and i was always struck by the fact that Oh, you're like your job is so much easier than mine. Um, you know, on the other side of the debate, because you don't have to work within the parameters of like factual information. You just say stuff. Like, you know, I remember one time I was in a segment, and one of the anti-choice people was like, "Plan B is an abortifacient." Like, so just said that sentence on TV. Nobody says like, "Hey, that's not true. That's not science. That's actually it's a whole different chemical." Then, then, then what you're thinking, it's right. not actually like, it's all, it's not, no, like my dad's a biologist, literally what you are saying is not true. But I think that a lot of the time in the mainstream media even is spent debunking some of the lies instead of just talking about the issues and, and doing the analysis of the impact. So part, I wish, so part I of wish it, Jamie, yeah, I wish Jamie would, in all fairness, I wish Jamie would give me a call, and I will teach him the Donald Trump methodology for Democrats. No, I mean, let listen, me just give you. If they were if smart, I can, they if would I can. talk to you. Uh-huh. If they were really smart, they would. And they would. T- that I appreciate that. Let me give you an example. This fucking ass clown, Lindsey Graham, comes out, and he's now warning of riots in the street if Trump is prosecuted. 
Where's the democratic message That's on That's a really that? good Let me tell question. you what Lindsey Graham is doing. That saggy old schmuck and a half. What is he doing? He's carrying Donald Trump's water to the people, stirring up shit, basically putting into the mind, and I had uh, Jason Van Tattenhove on the show, right? Exactly what Donald wants him to do, to put into this into their mind that if in fact that he gets indicted, if in fact he gets prosecuted, forget about the fact that he has the national security secrets that he's going to try to use as a get out of jail free card. He wants these people like on January 6th, armed and ready. Remember the famous words, stand by and you know, right. stand back and stand by. That's what Donald Trump is doing. So the fact that Democrats, that you and I and everybody else, and I consider Maya Culpa to be, you know, a, um, you know, a, we'll call this progressive, right? I would say that I'm slightly left of center. Mm -hmm. I'm far from, you know, a Bernie Sanders, um, you know, but I'm probably slightly left of, um, of center. This needs... An immediate response. Mm -hmm. And when I say an immediate response, I mean one so visceral, so deep down into the dog shit of the dumpster that, you know, a fool like Lindsey Graham will probably not run again because he'd be too embarrassed to show his mm -hmm. face. That's what we need to do. They keep making these mistakes. They keep giving us all the fodder and all the ammunition, mm -hmm. like the Roe v. Wade decision, Right. Where's the big message? This is Donald Trump. This is this is the Federalist Society. This is the Southern White Christian Coalition. Right. Now, you, right, you, Zerlina, you're not part of that Southern White Christian Coalition. No. Michael Cohen from New York, <laughs> neither am nah. I. If you look like you, if you look like me, if you are not a member of that, vote, vote against them, right? Why? So if we could control the House, the Senate, and the White House... You know what maybe we do? Maybe we actually manage to get something passed so that way, you know, instead of having the the number of jurors that we have on the Supreme Court, maybe we add the five additional. Mm -hmm. And then we make these three irrelevant or four because you also have Thomas on there who's just, no, you know, or Alito. I mean, it's, you know, it's we be a need while more people on the Supreme Court. Yeah. That's Listen, like, like I said to you, that's my take. So let me ask you this then. What do you think are the main issues going into November? Because many of us are worried because certain states have made it harder yeah. to vote and marginalize whole communities. So in your opinion, who are the people, places, and issues progressives should be most focused on right now, considering we're, what, 70-some-odd days away? I mean, I think they need to focus on the people that have voted for Democrats um, and even the people that... that People that just voted for Democrats in 2020, that's really what you need to do. You need to go get those people and you need to get them to go vote again. And you need to get the people who maybe they voted um, in the previous cycle and didn't vote in 2020. And you need to find them and you get them to. It's, it's all about turnout. Literally nothing else. I mean, the message is important. But I my first job in politics was a field organizer. And I always go back to that because, honestly, it is the most impactful job on a campaign. I had a job on a campaign where I worked in headquarters and I worked in the communications department. And we, you know, you, you, it's almost like West wing ish. Like, you know, like you feel like you, you're sort of, this is what it's like to be on a campaign and you're having those strategy meetings and you think you're really important and you're impacting the vote. 
Do you know how many filters are in between what you decide in a meeting and an actual voter? A lot. There's On like, the Trump campaign, none. Right. No, but but I think that was one of the benefits that you had <laughs> on your campaign is that there was no filters in between you and what the voters are hearing. And so I think that <laughs> a lot of what Demo- the Democratic strategy needs to be is it it's not about the message. I, I actually had that epiphany a couple of weeks ago and I was like, you know what? I don't think they could come up with like one, you know, slogan that's going to do it. They need to get people. They need to hire as many on the ground organizers as possible to educate people about the changes in the state laws around voting, register those people to vote and get them to the freaking polls. It's like it's not rocket science at this point, because now we're we're already in about to be in September. There's a lot there. You know, like if, if people need to be persuaded to come out and vote against Republicans at this point after an insurrection has taken place and they have defended that insurrection, I don't know what to tell those people. But I feel like the majority of the American public does not need to be persuaded. All you need to do is make sure that they get out and freaking vote. And that's that's organizing. That's not messaging. Then let me ask you this, then, mm-hmm. right? Because you've worked with some of the most powerful voices in progressive politics, right? Hillary with Barack Obama. Did you ever imagine that Trump would do as much damage to civil rights and the progressive movement as he has? And to what degree do you think that Trump's election was in reaction to a black president and a female secretary of state? I mean, do you feel like it's going to take years to fix the damage that's been done? And mm-hmm. if hypothetically we keep the House and the Senate in November, is there a chance that Washington can fix what's even broken? It's a, it's a big question because it's one I think a lot about. Yes. Um, Malcolm Nance, I know you know him. He says this Good is friend. this is the last election potentially, and I and I have to agree with him. I think that if we if we don't try to work to save the democracy, it will continue to disintegrate before our very eyes, and that means that if if they do elect a majority of Republicans in the House of Representatives, and they are like, we're going to impeach Kamala Harris because she's black. I mean, they'll come up with a reason, but it'll really be just because she's black um, and a woman. I mean, how dare she um, try to be in charge with with <laughs> looking like a woman and being black at the same time. How dare. Um, but I think that the damage that, and I felt this since election night. Again, I told you on election night 2016, I had a couple of different thoughts. One was, did we really think we were going to nominate the first woman and she was going to win? So I was like, maybe I was a little naive. <laughs> um, I've, I've lived my entire life as a woman. I know deeply how... Uh, impactful misogyny mm, congratulations on that no i mean yeah, the fact that i'm alive and still here a lot of women <laughs> can't say that which is not a funny joke but also haha um but but i think that you know there's a couple of different things it's like on election night one of the first thing uh, first people i talked to is my dad and my both my parents have lived through they're in their 60s they lived through the civil rights era were born in the 50s you know up teenage years sort of in the height of the civil rights era, 1968 election, all that. And my dad said on election night, 2016, Ooh, this, I'm not going to see, like, I'm not going to be here for when we have fixed the damage that Donald Trump has done. And this before anything had ever happened, like the election had just happened. They just called, I think I might've even been in the taxi cab on the way from the Javits center when they sort of, you know, got that notification that Donald Trump was the winner of the election. Like they officially called it for Donald Trump. My dad said, 
I will not be alive when the damage of this is fixed. That's how much it's going to be. I think he underestimated it. <laughs> I think it's more. I think it's worse. I don't think I don't, it's not just his lifetime. It's my lifetime, your lifetime. Just think about COVID alone. The reason why, I mean, I have a lot of critiques about the Bush, uh, not the Bush administration, the Biden administration when it comes to COVID-19 and, you know, the funding for vaccines, obviously that's Congress, but just the CDC messaging, obviously not great. But all of that goes back to the beginning of this pandemic and a million people died, a million who will never come back. So will the damage of this presidency and the insurrection and all those things, will it be fixed? I don't know, because none of those people are coming back. None of them. Their family members are never going to talk to them again. That is a horrible thought. I mean, imagine you're somebody whose mother and father died. That's happened a lot in the pandemic where people are losing both of their parents at the same time. Um, both their brother and I, my aunt lost her brother and her sister and her mother in the beginning of this pandemic. You can't recover from that. I mean, there's, I don't think that you are, you know, the same again, you may recover and become different and evolve, but no, I don't think you repair the damage. I don't think it's repairable. Yeah. You know, my, it's funny because my father, um, came to the same conclusion as your father, of course, though, at different times. Mm -hmm. Like my father, um, who I had introduced Trump to uh, on a multitude of occasions, um, didn't think or didn't see Trump as being this fascist authoritarian mm. that he turned out to be. Do you think he's fascist? I don't we know had a know. whole week of fascism experts. The answer and is they, yes. They said yes. yes. Yeah, I said yes. I, I do believe so. Um, my father lived through that. You know, my father's a Holocaust survivor. And so, you know, what is happening, not just to me, that's, you know, that's upset him something fierce, but what's happening to this country, because my father always looked at this country with rose-colored glasses, the land of opportunity. Where can, you know, a guy who ended up going to medical school in Toronto because he couldn't, he wasn't offered to stay in the United States after the war, um, comes to teach head and neck reconstructive surgery here in New York, right? And then ends up meeting my mom, married, four kids, all become lawyers. One becomes a felon, disbarred lawyer. But my father will forgive me one day for that. My point is, we're no longer the country that we used to be. Yeah. You know, we were moving in the right direction. And then this fucking asshole comes along and throws everything, throws, just puts us back. Like you were talking about the, uh, you know, the, the pink pussy hat, um, you know, marches all over. The whole purpose of that movement was to enlighten the country about women's rights. No, it, and mean, what do they do? The first thing they do is they take they they overturn a 50-year case of Roe v. Wade. And who knows what's next with this crazy bunch of people? No, I mean, when, when folks were sort of warning that we could be headed towards the handmaid's tale, like, we weren't joking. I think a lot of people took it a little bit too literally in the sense that they were like, oh, it'll be just like the handmaid's tale and, like, you'll have to wear the red outfit. I was like, first of all, the whole country is not going to be Gilead, but Alabama will be Gilead. It will be just like Gilead, just like that. They will be jailing women and mm -hmm. doctors for attempting to get medical care. I mean, and it's not just, it's not, 
abortion is health care. And the, the reason I say that is like for so long, you know, people on the left said that as sort of a talking point without explaining what they mean. But now that we have seen women, you know, a woman walking around with a dead fetus inside of her body because the doctor doesn't want to remove it because they're afraid they will be held legally. Or a 10 year old who gets raped or who a gets raped 15 and, year old. Exactly. Right. So now so now we're sort of all coming to around to the to the idea that abortion is health care, because when you are, don't have access to the health care that you need when there's an emergency, the result is you get sick and perhaps you die. That, that's those are the consequences. Yeah. It's it's not a, they they don't care they don't, they don't care. care but well as, that's that's they I think don't the care as point. long as their yeah. southern white Christian coalition values are being upheld but I wanted to ask you mm-hmm. this question because we were talking about you know you did a whole thing on fascists and so on Republicans obviously don't like to be called fascists no of right? course not but every single one of them voted against removing Nazis and white supremacists. Per, um, you know, personnel from the U.S. military. Mm-hmm. Now, they voted against voter rights. Viktor Orban was invited to speak at CPAC. I mean, MAGA is a white nationalist movement, so their ties to fascism are very, I mean, they're impossible to deny. In your opinion, is our democracy on the line now? And what are the consequences if we actually lose in November, like people are predicting? Um... I don't know. I'm really scared. Um, I'm really scared uh, about the if if the Democrats are not able to maintain majorities in November, because I definitely think that they are going to attempt to impeach Joe Biden for it could be any reason they're going to come. They'll just make one up um, at this point, because obviously Donald Trump was impeached twice for, for legitimate reasons, but they will just do it as, in terms of retribution. Then I also sort of have this weird picture in my mind of like even if donald trump doesn't run for president him showing up to try to be the speaker of the house or some crazy shit to reign over the impeachment of joe biden or some you know what i mean like just make that a reality show and then i'm just gonna have to leave um i'm going to have to move to to the woods um if that's the case because i don't think i'll be able to i'll just come back later (laughs) i don't know if i can fight in the revolution just yet i'm gonna have to go steal my get some resolve um, because i'm very tired um but I do think that – so the danger here is that we lose the democracy without realizing it. The danger here is that we picture fascism as high-stepping military in the street you know, with a tank. And that is not what it's going to look like here. Not at first. It may eventually. But at first it will just look like close elections where it looks like there was some fraud or some cheating, but we can't prove it. Or voter disenfranchisement because of legal voter suppression that has changed laws in states where those elections are very close. And the people that are impacted the most by those changes in laws are just coincidentally black and brown people. Like in Mississippi, where they upheld a law from 1890 just now um, that was intentionally um, passed in Mississippi to disenfranchise black people. It's the the, the felons voting law um, in Mississippi from 1890. So for me, I feel like there is a danger of the descent to authoritarianism if the Democrats do not keep one of the, both of the chambers of Congress. But I think the bigger question for me is, I think that while there is a threat of a violent response, if somebody prosecutes Donald Trump, 
that's actually the only mechanism through which we can defuse some of this. He has to be prosecuted. He has to be held accountable for violations of the law that are provable. And they have to make an attempt. I'm tired of like the debate over whether he violated all these laws when we have like, you know, books and books written about how he's violated laws. Um, and, you know, I mean, then you get the pundits on every single day. Saying he's going to mean, jail. We're talking he's about still, law professors. He's you know, at home. Right. And, you know, chowing down on his Marilardo <laughs> burgers with, you know, two gallons of ice cream. Now, look, Zelina. You're, I understand why you would be tired because you're a consummate journalism uh, journalist. You have that two-hour news show five days a week on Sirius XM, so it's understandable that you're tired, right? I'm not a morning person. It's gonna be either, incredible. Just so you know. They gave me a morning show, <laughs> and I was like, be... "Oh Lord, I'm gonna have to wake up at six. This is gonna be hard." We just go to sleep earlier. Yeah, now true. that's got to be an incredible amount of work for you because every show has its own style and its own audience. But if you would, describe for my listeners what your show is all about. Because I understand you sometimes interview your father, mm -hmm. whom I understand is exceptionally funny, yeah. kind of like me, <laughs> right? But it's also hard news. So what's the style of your show? And who are you trying to? And who mm -hmm. are you actually reaching? So I would say the style of... Of my show, I mean, it's a it's an iteration of the show that I did with my my colleague from the Hillary campaign, Jess McIntosh. Um, you know, but now that it's just me, it's my voice and my nickname as a child. This is my dad's nickname for me was Little Miss Question. So that's what I do. I, I ask questions about everything all the time. I've always been that way since I was little. I always wanted to know what was going on, where we were going, who's that person, why are they there? Um, and so that just applies to everything. Now, because, you know, it, it effectively, I am somebody who's very curious. Curiosity sort of drives me. Um, and so that's how I approach the show. I want to come hand, you know, with a list of questions. And I think that they're the most pertinent ones that all the listeners are trying to figure out for themselves. And I'm going to bring on the voices, the people, the analysts, the lawyers, the experts that can help dare I say, unconfused people <laughs> about what's going on in the world. Um, yes, it has a lefty point of view. Yes, it is something that, um, you know, has a perspective. I am not shy about that. I, you know, where, where I've worked and who I've worked for is completely public information. But I'm also not somebody who shies away from people who disagree. I mean, I have people call all the time that like are like, well, I was listening to the Patriot Channel and you just flipped over. So, you know, I have a lot of those folks and my rule is I don't, raise my blood pressure for anybody um, because uh, consequences of high blood pressure are very serious. And um, I just, I, I want people to get smarter, more aware, and a little bit more empathetic. The other part of my show that I think is, is important. It has an explicitly intersectional feminist point of view. And the reason for that is because I think that that actually, that lens makes you more empathetic. It makes you more compassionate. It makes you more kind. It makes you understand sort of what's going on in the world a little bit better. So for me, I think it's a place where people can figure out what's happening in the world, figure out how it affects them, figure out why it matters. And when we identify problems, we can, we, we throw out solutions and ideas and analysis of how we can fix it and make it better. And I feel like the show is still very much evolving because the, this iteration of the show without Jess is, um, 
is still in his what first three months um, or six months. <laughs> um, but I think that I may be the only feminist morning show in the United States of America. That's bad in 2022. <laughs> um, but that's what we're but that's what we're doing. You know, especially if you have people like Lindsey Graham calling for civil war, right? I mean, who do they go after? They go after the easy pickings. They go after, you know, people like myself, you know, people who have name recognition like yourself. But Zelina, let me say, the hour goes by very quickly on Maya Culpa. You believe it? We're I know, already, it's so fast. Already, I was just looking at my phone because I'm right? getting a text. On my it's, phone, so I was like, yeah, oh, are well, we done? Tell them, tell them not to text you. Tell okay. them not to text you because I have one last question okay. for you. Okay, so it's clear that cable news is shifting. CNN has a new boss and a new direction that's supposedly moving towards the center. Now, I'm not sure that that means, you know, what that means really for the rest of um, cable news. I mean, Fox has the lion's share of evening viewers, but they're more entertainment based. And I'm not even sure how they can call what they do news. In fact, Sean Hannity turned around himself and said, I'm not a journalist, right? I'm a, um, I'm a uh, talk show host. But you work primarily at MSNBC and Peacock, which is considered more to the left. And your expertise is in the progressive media. Would you say that anyone these days is able to report the news without bias? I mean, the truth isn't supposed to be negotiable. Facts are facts. Mm -hmm. Well, so one of the things I think a lot about is the fact that, you know, in progressive media, I wouldn't use the word bias, right? Like I... I have a perspective. I'm not shying away from the fact that I believe certain things, right? Like I believe women are people. That if that makes me like biased, okay. Um, and 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 by the way, that's one of the simplest definitions of feminism. Feminist mean means you believe women are people. <laughs> so it's like so it's it's a thing where you know certain thing certain beliefs within media are seen as objective, and others are seen as you have you have bias. So I think that um, it depends what it is. And I think it's it's important for us to stick to the facts. So while I have a perspective on certain issues, I'm never going to say things that are that don't align with the facts. I'm always going to align with the facts. OK, but a fact is a fact, right? Let's right, just say like the fact is one fact. plus one. One plus one will always equal two. It just it's a fact, right? The sun rises and the sun sets each and every day. That's a fact. There's no such thing as alternative facts. Now you can have your opinion and I respect everybody's mm -hmm. opinion so long as it's predicated on fact, right? And that's not what Fox is doing. When you start seeing the nonsense that's being spewed by the Josh Hawleys, the Matt Gaetzes, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, Trump, Ted Cruz, I mean, just the whole group of them, Mark Meadows, Jim Jordan, um, now Lindsey Graham, that's not facts. And when you present them with the facts, the first thing they turn around, they tell you, no, you have it wrong. Well, then show me where right. I'm wrong. But they can't do that. No. How do you combat? You know, my grandma used to always say, you can't argue with stupid. Mm. That's the problem. The Democrats have taken this position that you can't argue with stupid. And so we're just not arguing at all. And we're allowing them to control their fake message day in and day out. And 
it's troubling. It's really troubling. It's troubling for the party. It's troubling for the elections, both midterm and general. Well, I think there is some truth to the fact that there is something on the Democratic side that means that they don't want to get in, you know, get in the dirt. They don't want to get in the mud. They don't want to fight. Um, You know, they want to sort of be above the fray. And I understand that impulse. Um, I understand it. But I and I think that I'm not saying you get in the mud and I'm not saying that anybody should fight because obviously I am um, opposed to violence in all situations. Um, But I think that Democrats can show that they're willing to be loud. Right. And in some instances, you know, the fight has to do with your point earlier, which is where is Jamie Harrison, where it, where are some of these louder Democratic or, or bigger Democratic leaders and why are they not being louder on some of these issues and about the threats to democracy? Now, some of them are. I think some of them really, really are. Um, some of them are. Who? Eric Swalwell. Very good. I think more people should talk Great like Eric guy. Swalwell. Speak to, I, <laughs> I, 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 wish, I wish he would run for president. Yeah, like, I told him that about two weeks ago. No, no, no. I mean, and he did. Um before, but I think that I think that the 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 most important thing in this moment is that we all can do just a little bit of something. So while I look and say Jamie Harrison could be doing more, and when I say the media could be doing more, or X person um, in this organization could be doing more, every single voter in America needs to ask themselves, what are you doing? What did you do today to save democracy? Did you call five people? Did you text five people to make sure that they are registered to vote? Did you check your own registration? To make sure your registration has not expired or changed in any capacity or address doesn't change because that happens too in any state, mm-hmm. even if they're not trying to do anything nefarious. So instead of saying what how could the message change or what should the party infrastructure be doing, I think one of the things in this election cycle we all need to do is take responsibilities as individuals and as voters and say, what could we do? Because I don't want to – one of the reasons I worked on the campaign in 2008 – I did not want to have that election go by and have a Democrat lose and say, oh, I wish I could have done more or I wish I would have done X, Y, Z. I wanted to be able to complain and say, well, I did everything. It's not my fault. (laughs) Kind of like how I do now. Fair enough. Um, (laughs) Yep. (laughs) but But I think it's really important for all of us to sort of become organizers. In our own families, our and own I communities. Still believe, and I still believe, and I'll end it on that, that Jamie Harrison, the, the DNC, we should be putting on um, conventions like CPAC. We should have a DPAC. You get all, you get the Jamie Raskins up there, the mm-hmm. Eric Swalwells, you get, you know, you get the, the whole, get Hillary to come in there, mm-hmm. get, you know, um, you know former President um, Obama to come up there, you know, fight. Fight. If, if we're going to fight for democracy, there's no better time to do it now. But Zelina, let me thank you for joining thank me. You. you know, like I said, the hour goes by. I could talk to you for two more hours. Well, I, talk, um, I mean, appreciate my job you is coming talking, on. So I tend my most people have to tell me to be quiet because they said I'm always my dad says I'm little miss question <laughs> and I have the gift of gab. So he's like, you're in the right job. Thank God for that. <laughs> Well, thank God that's right for radio. But I do interview uh, so my Lena, dad thank- because he's a biologist. That's why he ends up on my show on Fridays. He's what he's who's kept me alive and COVID free. His advice. And so Very I good. have him on um, because he can explain it way better than I can.
I'm sure you can, and me as well. But Zelina, thank you thank so you. much for joining me. Um, I'll definitely be speaking to you, and I'll definitely be seeing you again soon. Thank you so much. Stay safe. Uh, you too. And now for today's mea culpa. It's all very convenient for Republicans to blame anyone but Trump for his crimes. I mean, the MAGA voters still love him. And God knows they don't want to lose MAGA voters. Who would be left to vote Republican? A handful of old people and maybe Elon Musk? But to scapegoat the DOJ and the FBI to get Trump off the hook, it's just simply inexcusable. The fact is, they no longer give a shit about law and order. I mean, in fact, maybe they never did. I'll remind you that a Republican pardoned Nixon while Democrats impeached Trump twice. Democrats are the party of law and order. I'll say it all the time, but it's true and totally maddening. Trump has committed innumerable crimes and always manages to get away with it. But look at Trump's people, the early bad hombres, like Manafort, Stone, and Bannon. Who looks at these three stooges and thinks, oh yeah, fuck, I trust these guys. No one, no one but magas. And remember, the former interior secretary who rode in on a White House horse, Ryan Zinke? He recently used his position in government to screw some Native Americans out of their gaming rights, but he also wasn't indicted. Zinke slammed the investigation as a political hit job by the Biden administration. But the inspector who oversaw the investigation was appointed by Trump, and Zinke was fucking guilty of sin. But he didn't go to jail like he should have, and he still favored to win a Montana House seat. I guess MAGAs love lawless blowhards, but what really happens when politicians commit crimes they don't pay for is resignation. And when law enforcement lets those politicians slide, we resign ourselves to being victims of the system. And that's just how it goes. Politicians have always been dirty. Whoa, whoa, but that's bullshit. Not all politicians are criminals, just most of them happen to be Republicans. Now I'm only sort of joking, but it's true. But I read the other day and it rang true that the law exists for all of us. To act otherwise causes a loss of faith in our democracy. And sometimes I wonder if that's what Republicans are trying to do. Crime in plain sight so that we give up, look the other way, accept it. And then before we know it, the democracy is gone. But what if we just stop taking it, call out the lies in real time, call out the criminals, and call out the crimes? George Clooney has a documentary coming out in September about Jim Jordan and the Ohio State sexual abuse scandal that he tried to cover up. I mean, finally, that's a step in the right direction. Fantasy filmmaker Dinesh D'Souza was set to publish the book version of his debunked 2000 Mules until the publisher issued a recall on the eve of the book's release. So sorry fucking Dinesh, it ain't gonna happen. I know justice comes in many forms, but democracy won't survive the lawlessness of our politicians without law enforcement. I, for one, support Merrick Garland and the DOJ as they investigate Trump, come what may. I don't care if Republicans threaten riots in the streets. I don't care if it's political or inconvenient. I care about the rule of law, and I'm sure you do too. And thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media, written by Jimmy Jelinek and Paula Killen. 
Our editor and managing producer is Lisa Orkin. Our executive producers are Jared Gustad, Jimmy Jelinek, and myself, Michael Cohen, along with Phil Alberstadt. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is still winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, I promise you, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth. This is my mea culpa. Oh baby, don't lie for me. If I tell you my story, don't cry.